Well, what would you do if you were faced with a choice between following your heart's conviction and speaking out against something, knowing full well that it'll land you in some hot water, like people are not going to be happy, you will lose everything, or doing nothing, saying nothing, remaining in silence, what would you do? See, that's the dilemma that Martin Luther had 500 years ago. Luther was a priest in the Roman Catholic Church, and he saw the state of the church at that time. He saw corruption in the leadership. He saw how the doctrine was starting to veer off of orthodox true doctrine. He saw that their practices were just skewed. For example, they were selling what were called indulgences. If you've never heard of indulgences, it was a Middle Eastern, uh, uh, Middle Ages practice 500 years ago where they were basically doing a church fundraiser. Now, nothing wrong with a church fundraiser, except instead of selling baked goods, they were selling forgiveness of sins. Okay, that's a problem. And Luther had a check in his spirit. It didn't sit right well, it didn't sit well with him as it shouldn't, as it shouldn't, if we were to see the same thing. And so he goes home and he writes out 95 statements called 95 Theses on this scroll. 95 statements of grievances against the church, that you know, things are not okay. Let's, let's return back to gospel-centeredness and to scriptural background. And it was basically, these 95 statements were based on three principles. First, the holy priesthood of the believer, meaning that because of Jesus, because he's our mediator, because of the blood of Jesus from the cross that gives us confidence to go before God's holy throne into his holy presence, you don't have to go through me, through a pope, priest, or pastor. We go straight to God through Jesus. That's good news. That was his first principle. Second major principle was salvation by grace through faith in Jesus alone, not by works, not by religion, not by attending church, not by reading your Bible, Jesus, and nothing else. And the third principle was the primacy of Scripture. The Bible is the sole authority in the Christian life over every man-made thing, over me, over every pope, priest, pastor. This is our authority in life. So he wrote these 95 statements, and, you know, then he mailed them out to everybody, right? No, what did he do? He goes to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany, and he nails it to the door. Now, lest you think he was a crazy person, it was kind of a thing they did back then. It was like a bulletin board, and so he's like, I want everyone to know these things. He nails it to the door, and many scholars believe that this act, among several events, sparked what is called the what? Reformation, or Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther is known as the great reformer. And the Reformation was basically a return to gospel centrality instead of vain, empty, religious, works-based righteousness. And so, kind of a a, a big deal, and you could read more, uh, you know, about the history of it, And it happened, by the way, 504 years ago today, October 31st. Now, we know October 31st as Halloween, and all our kids are going to dress up in costumes and all that uh, later. But if you are a church history nerd like me, like if you came to the church and someone's like, Happy Reformation Day, that's a fellow church history nerd like me. And that's okay. Uh, Today, 504 years ago today. Now, anyone have the 95 Theses memorized? 
Anyone know any of them? I don't know a single one. So I was surprised to find out that the first one is this. This is what Luther wrote. First statement, when our Lord Jesus said repent, he willed that the whole of the Christian life should be one of repentance. Hmm. The whole of the Christian life should be repentance. Oh, we don't like to talk about repentance, right? We like to turn a blind eye to our sin. We don't want to talk about repentance. I mean, I got saved by grace and I'm forgiven for my sins. I repented and believed, you know, years ago. Isn't that like case closed? I'm done with that whole thing. Mission accomplished. Well, that would be true if we were perfect after conversion. And I'm not going to ask you how many of you are perfect because I could probably ask your spouse or kids if you're yelling at them in the car on the way to church like I might do sometimes, or am I the only sinner? Come on now. We're not perfect after conversion, so repentance and faith are not only for conversion unto salvation, but they are a continual part of the Christian walk. Repentance should be a defining marker and a consistent trend in the Christian life and in the Christian church, and yet it's become like the forgotten habit of grace. We're going through this teaching series this fall, Habits of Grace. In fact, by the way, as a little side note, shameless plug, at the welcome desk, you're going to find a stack of these. Take one. This is like a summary of the book that a lot of our small groups and ministries are going through, Habits of Grace by David Mathis. It's really, really good. But if you did book reports back in the day and you cheated using Spark Notes or Cliff Notes, grab one of these. Okay, that was a joke. I'm sorry. That was, didn't mean to offend. Uh, maybe I was the only one that did that. Uh, but no, these are just summaries of the book that you can grab and you can hand these out to others. Uh, they're really, really good. So habits of grace. Repentance is the forgotten habit of grace. So in the words of Sam Storms, repentance is painful, but oh, it's a sweet pain. It's difficult, but it is indispensable. So what are habits of grace? This is the definition we've been going with. Habits of grace are God-ordained channels of his transforming power into our lives to grow our character into the likeness of Christ. Meaning God is continually purifying his people. He's forming us. He's shaping us. He's molding us as he desires. And a means of grace that he uses to do this is ongoing repentance through the work of the Holy Spirit within us. Or, to put it this way, in fact, write this down. This will be a really simple statement. Repentance is an ongoing part of the Christian life. That's the main idea this morning. It's an ongoing part of the Christian life. Turn to Galatians chapter 5 in your Bible, on your phone, or you can look at the screen. Galatians chapter 5. The Apostle Paul is writing to the Christians at the church in Galatia, which is Asia Minor, now modern-day Turkey. And we're going to pick up in verse 16. Galatians 5, verse 16. Paul writes, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Watch how you walk. If you're just walking, you're not paying attention where you're walking, right? You trip, you stumble, you fall. Maybe I'm just clumsy, but I do it a lot. You got to watch where you walk. Watch how you walk. And Paul says you either walk by the spirit or you walk by the flesh. There's a dichotomy here, and it's very evident. There's a dualism. You either, it's either or. Either 
walk under the Spirit, live under the influence of the Holy Spirit, or you live under the influence of your sinful flesh, but you cannot do both. You can't straddle the fence here. Have you ever tried to straddle a fence? It chafes, <laughs> especially if it's barbed wire. We are not meant to straddle spiritual fences. So we either walk by the Spirit or walk by the flesh, but you cannot do both. So what is the flesh? It's not a word that we hear often, except like this time of year during Halloween. You know, flesh and bone, flesh-eating bacteria, bacteria, you know, rotting flesh if someone's wearing a zombie costume. Repentance and faith are needed, and, 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 and they're needed to forego our flesh. See, flesh typically sounds very carnal and earthy, and it is. Flesh can mean the purely physical part of us. But often the New Testament speaks of our flesh in an ominous, unflattering way. If you are a believer, you are declared righteous by God. And the Holy Spirit, through the gospel of Jesus, through the truths of God's word, begins the process of making you righteous. So you're declared righteous, and then the rest of your life, you're declared righteous at salvation, in, in, when you are converted, when you're given a new nature, you're declared righteous by the righteous judge, by the, by the God who is holy above everything. And then the rest of your life, he's forming you into what he already declared you to be. The Bible calls this sanctification, which quite literally means to be made holy, to be set apart for him. He's conforming you, son of the king. He's conforming you, daughter of the king, princes and princesses of the king of all kings and lord of all lords into the image of Christ. Okay, I thought someone would get excited about that. Let's roll that back. He is conforming you, sons and daughters of the king, into the image of Jesus. That's good news. But, ah, there's always a but. But within you is not only the righteousness that he instills, but there's an opposing force, a remnant of the old rebel, the old you, the old dead you that wanted nothing to do with God, certainly not loving him, submitting to him, trusting in him, delighting in him, following him in obedience. And this old you, which the New Testament calls the flesh, is the sinful rebel who would have rejected God in the Garden of Eden if you were there. It's the part of you that rejected God's rightful authority in your life. It's the tyranny of self. Self-exaltation. Self-aggrandizement. Self, being self-absorbed. Self-concerned. Self-sufficiency. Self-righteousness. It's self, self, self. Now what does the flesh look like? Well, Paul tells us. Look at verse 19, check out the works of the flesh. He says, now these are the works of the flesh. They are evident. They're very apparent. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, murder, drunkenness, orgy, orgies, and things like these. Meaning, this is not an exhaustive list. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who do these things. Now, quite literally in the Greek, it's those who repetitively do these things. It's those who practice these things. Like we practice things that we enjoy. 
to get better at it. And so those who do these things and get better at them because they enjoy them, their lives are characterized by these works of the flesh. Paul is saying, if that's you, you're not saved. You know a tree by its fruit. Jesus says that. And we're about to see that here in a little bit. So you have the flesh versus the spirit, the rebel versus the righteous, and they are diametrically opposed. I mean, they hate one another. They're at war within you as a believer. They're duking it out, fighting, battling it out. Christians, we have two natures. You have the flesh, the sinful nature that you received at your physical birth, and then you have the new nature given to us by God through Jesus in the Holy Spirit at your spiritual birth when you were born again in Christ by trusting in him. So you have the indwelling spirit versus our indwelling sin. And both have desires. The, the spirit desires holiness for you while the flesh desires evil and wickedness and spiritual rebellion for you. Have you ever thought, and before I was a Christian, it seems like things were kind of easier. I didn't have this internal conflict within me, just battling it out, raging within me. It's like I find myself at war with myself. Anyone else have those thoughts? Like, man, what is going on? Good. That's good. That's evidence of the spirit at work within you, challenging any corrupt, sinful patterns within you. See, before conversion, there was no opposition. You just did whatever your sinful flesh desired. Now there is the constant demand by the spirit to change and look to Jesus and be like Jesus. So now, your old person doesn't get his way anymore. She doesn't get her way like she used to, and that old person, oh, he kicks. He kicks hard, but praise God, the Holy Spirit kicks harder. Last weekend, we were able to go for a few days to Colorado to see my family. I haven't been there in a few years. Saw the mountains, saw my grandma who just turned 90 last week, and it was, it was a great time. And as we're on our way, you know, I always get, I get high anxiety when I go through an airport, because like, you know, they're, come on, come on, you got to hurry through the line. And I'm always thinking, am I going to miss the flight? And so my wife loves that. Uh, that's sarcasm. Uh, and so we're like, hurry, hurry, hurry. We got all our bags and we're trying to get through the line. And there's, it's, the line is never short. I'm always praying, God, let the line be short. And oh, thorn in my flesh. <laughs> my grace is sufficient for you. So we get through the, the security line and we're trying to work our way through. And we get to the front where the TSA agents are. And oh, they have so many rules and regulations. Okay, you gotta take your liquids and you put them in a three ounce bottle and put all those three ounce bottles in a clear plastic bag that is about this size. And you need to take off your shoes. I don't care how stinky your feet are, and my feet are pretty stinky. Take off your shoes. And you gotta put every bag in its own bin. And you gotta take out, oh, don't you dare take your laptop and leave it in the bag. You gotta take that laptop out of the bag or you're gonna get called out. And then you feel like going to the principal's office. And so they have the laptops in each individual bin. And you go through all these things. They make me take off my belt. It holds up my pants. <laughs> like I have to go through the metal detector like this. Oh, it's embarrassing. So here I am with stinky feet, exposed to everybody, pants that are trying to fall down, bags going through the thing, and sometimes I just wish I could be like, you know what, I know it's wrong, but 
I know it's wrong, but I'm just going to go through this thing the way I want to go through. Liquids go wherever they want. I'm wearing my belt. I'm wearing my shoes. I'm not taking my laptop. And you know what? I'm going to hold on to my laptop. In fact, you know what? I'm going, I'm going to dive straight through the x-ray machine on the rollers just, woo! I know it's wrong, but would that fly? No. <laughs> Pun in, kind of intended with the fly. No, that wouldn't fly. You're not going to fly because the police and security are going to be like, hey, we got to take you to jail. <laughs> yeah. You're not getting on that flight. I know it's wrong, but. Now let me ask you, if that would never work with TSA agents, why'd we ever, why would we ever think that that works with a holy, perfect, infinite God? And yet I hear Christians, or maybe churchgoers, say it all the time, I know it's wrong, but dot, dot, dot. I'm going to do it anyway. I know scripture says don't do it. I know God says don't do it, but I'm going, to, I'm going to do it anyway. And I know it's wrong, but is a dangerous proposition that should not be in our verbiage. Christians, this rationalization of, of sin shows a flippant attitude toward the seriousness of sin. Psychologists call this cognitive dissonance, which is kind of a fancy way of saying it's the internal comfort that results from conflicting beliefs or values within us. So there's, there's an inconsistency between what we believe and how we behave. So we believe and value this way, but we're going to behave this way. And you can see how that causes conflict within you. That's cognitive dissonance or exactly what Paul is describing here in Galatians 5. See, the, fre- the, the flesh is constantly trying to get you to gratify its desires. When I get a mosquito bite, I swell up real bad, like real bad. And praise God, mosquitoes are gone at least until spring. That's one of the reasons I love fall. But I get mosquito bites and they just swell up real bad. And you know when you look at a mosquito bite and it itches so badly and the more you think about it, the more you stare at it, the more you want to itch it. And I do the thing like, let's say here's the bug bite, I scratch all around it or I dig my fingernail in. Does anyone do that? Like our fingernails, the most disgusting, dirty part of our body. And we're like, oh, I'm not going to get infected at all. And, but I need to gratify the itch. I just, oh, oh, that feels so good for a moment. But then it swells up and it gets worse. And the itch gets stronger. And it's viable toward infection because I scratched it with my disgusting fingernails. When we gratify that itch, it may satisfy it for a moment, but there are always worse long-term repercussions. And our flesh within us has cravings that we feel compelled to feed. The old you, that rebellious remnant, oh, he or she wants to give in to these sinful impulses that are contrary to the ways of God. So what's the antidote? Look what it says in verse 16. Walk by the Spirit. Give in to the desires of the Spirit. See, the flesh has desires, but so does the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is giving you his desires. What are his desires? It's to know Jesus more. It's to grow in Jesus. To magnify Jesus with your life through the means of grace that we've been talking about in this whole teaching series, the habits of grace. It's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That's what the Spirit does. And this is the essence of repentance. Repentance is course correction. 
Repentance, the Greek word for repentance is the word metanoia. Everyone say metanoia. Metanoia literally means after mind. So it's a change in your way of thinking, a change in your mind, a change in your pattern of thinking that results in a change of life direction. It is not merely confession. Confession is the first step. Acknowledging your sin is the first step. It's not an apology. It's not confession. Repentance may start with I'm sorry, but it certainly doesn't end there. Maybe this has happened to you, but sometimes I'll be driving. I'll be in my car, and I'm on my way to, like, a friend's house, and I've been there a dozen times. I know how to get there. But my mind is deep in thoughts. I'm thinking, and, and uh, I start drifting in my thoughts. I'm not paying attention to where I'm going. And as I'm driving, I'm like, ha, huh, I am literally going in the complete opposite direction. Anyone else, has that happened to you? Now, in that moment, are you going to be like, nah, it's okay. I'm going to keep going. I'll get there eventually. No! You uh, pull it over, flip a Yui, and you do a 180, and you go the right direction. That's repentance. Repentance is course correction. And we need course correction because our hearts naturally drift. We see that in the Old Testament. The Israelites, God's people, would worship God and then drift towards idolatry and worshiping false gods and then They'd face God's judgment, and they'd be like, oh, I'm sorry, and they'd return to God, worship God for a little while, and then drift again. And it was cyclical over and over, and that's the pattern we're going to have if we don't have the Spirit of God giving us course correction. That's why repentance is not only a one-time act for salvation, it's ongoing. One of my favorite hymns of all time is Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. You guys know that song? I thought about singing it, but you wouldn't want that (laughs) But let me just tell you the words. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. The, the, the hymn author is saying, God, your grace is so good, so powerful, so mighty, so beautiful. I owe you my everything. And yet I owe you nothing because that's grace. I can't owe you anything. I can't pay you anything. How beautiful is grace? He says, let your goodness like a fetter, like a shackle, bind my wandering heart to thee. Well, why is that? Because I'm prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. Repentance is course correction. But here, this is important. Repentance is not an event. It's a process. We need constant recalibration in our hearts to delight in Jesus instead of delighting in these false mirages that our world gives that seek to capture our hearts. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He pulls back the reins on us when we wander from him. And this disgusting disease of sin, our rotting flesh, here's, here's, this is the good news. It will not Listen, Christians, it will not take away your eternal life. Your sinful flesh will not take away your eternal life because you are secure in Christ forever. Nonetheless, the flesh can make your life miserable and impede you from growing in Christ and conforming into his likeness. Now, I apologize for the potential insensitivity of this illustration I'm about to give because we all know people who have died of cancer. But imagine if you could get cancer but not die from it. 
Like imagine if you could have, you have all the tumors and they do everything that they do in your body and they spread and they crowd your internal organs. It'd be hard to breathe. Your breathing would be labored. You couldn't walk well. You'd be hunched over. You'd be in constant pain and suffering, constantly trying to gasp your breath. Your heart wouldn't beat right. You wouldn't be able to focus right. I mean, we've, we've all seen people suffering and dying of cancer. And I imagine if you had that, but you just didn't die. It would be awful. We'd be in constant pain and suffering. You would not live life to the fullest that you could. And so what must you do? Well, we would have to cut out the cancer, which in and of itself is painful. Surgery is not fun. I don't know anyone that enjoys surgery. Surgery is painful, but it spares us from far more destructive pain. And repentance is continually getting on the surgical table and letting the the surgeon, the Holy Spirit, who is also the MRI machine that points out where our cancer of sin is, and letting the surgeon do the work of cutting it out. He shows us where it is, and by continual ongoing repentance and faith, he cuts out our cancer of sin. And so, you either cultivate the flesh or you cultivate the spirit. Like you sow seeds of the flesh or you sow seeds of the spirit. And when you sow seeds, it grows and it bears fruit. Both bear fruit. We already saw the works of the flesh. That's the fruit of the flesh. But let's look at the fruit of the spirit. Verse 22. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. The fruit of the spirit, not fruits So many people talk about the fruits of the Spirit. It's singular. It's fruit. It's a cluster of fruit. These are the nine attributes that the Spirit produces in us as a composite whole. This is not an a la carte menu. Well, I love love, and I'm pretty joyful, but patience, I can't be patient with that guy, or self-control. I mean, I'm pretty loving and joyful. I'm just not so patient. Listen, if you are a follower of Christ, yes, you are. Because we don't worship, we don't serve nine Jesuses, We don't serve nine Holy Spirits, nine gods. We serve how many gods? One God, one Jesus, one Savior, one Messiah, one Spirit, one fruit of the Spirit. And so all these fruit of the Spirit, these characteristics, they characterize Jesus. They describe Jesus. And if that's the case, they should characterize you. Not perfectly. Now, you may have different levels. You may be, you know, more loving and your patience is here, but they're all in you because the Holy Spirit's in you and they characterize you more and more and more as you're being molded into the image of Jesus. You, uh, your walk should align with these characteristics because they reflect the one you follow. You know, since I've been your pastor this year, you guys have learned some things about me, some things I may not be so proud of. <laughs> like, I, um, I love watching Bob Ross. You know, Bob, the 80s painter, the art of painting on PBS. Like, it's my guilty pleasure. Don't you judge me. <laughs> like, sometimes I watch Bob Ross and just, oh, I just want to fall asleep to his soothing voice, and it's great. Uh, you also found out that I hate LaCroix. That sin-soaked Satan water from hell. I don't know what that is. Okay, that might be a little much. If you love LaCroix, have at it. God bless you. I'm not a fan. Let me tell you one thing. Uh, I'm going to give you another thing. And this is, this is, uh, might be the most embarrassing of these. I, (laughs) 
I secretly, I enjoy watching sumo wrestling. <laughs> like, okay, I don't like 500-pound men wearing diapers and giving each other wedgies. Like, no one likes, that's, uh, no one likes that. But I'm fascinated by it. You have these 300, 400, 500-pound men, big, strong men, and they, the object is they're trying to get each other out of the ring. You get your opponents two feet outside the ring, and then you win. And so they're going after it, and I'm just like, man. Now, if I was ever in a sumo wrestling match, It'd be the shortest sumo wrestling match in history. 0.45 seconds, he takes his big belly, just boom, I'm, I'm out of the ring. It's over. So how, how do I defeat the sumo wrestler? Well, you starve the sumo. I remember years ago, I read a book called Every Man's Battle when I was a kid. I was probably 12 or 13. And it talks about uh, you know, sinful struggles that guys struggle with and how to overcome them through the Holy Spirit. It's a good book. And there was a chapter called Starving the Sumo. And so if you want to defeat the sumo wrestler, don't feed him. Stop feeding him. And he'll go from 485 down to what I am, about a buck 85, and then maybe you can take him. And it was a good truth. It's a good truth that served me for a while. But I realized years later, it's a half truth. It's not the full truth. It's good, it's true. You do need to starve the sumo, starve your sinful desires, but it's half the battle. And I realized later, you have to walk by the Spirit, meaning you submit to the Spirit, you strengthen the Spirit's influence on you to overcome the flesh's hold on you. And the way you do that, the way you walk by the Spirit is you delight in Jesus. So yeah, starve the sumo, don't feed your flesh but feed the Spirit by delighting in Jesus because he's so much better, church, right? He's so much better. And look at what, this is kind of what Paul is saying in verse 18. If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Self-sufficiency usually means spirit deficiency. And so where's our power? Where's the source of our power when we try to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps? When, when we try to, through you know, rules-based righteousness or sheer willpower, Where's our power source? Us. Self. And self is not a sustaining, life-giving power to live for Jesus. In fact, quite the opposite. But when you walk by the Spirit, this is what he's saying, when you walk by the Spirit, you're no longer under the impulse of trying to make yourself righteous. Instead, you actually realize, I got nothing. Jesus, you have everything. I have nothing, so I need you. That's a prayer of repentance. The Holy Spirit reminds us of the gospel of grace. No longer under the law. No longer under religious oppression or having to earn your way to God, but under grace. Turn to John chapter 16. This is a beautiful passage. This is obviously the words of Jesus. John chapter 16. He's talking to his disciples, and we're going to pick up in verse 7. If, you don't, if you're not there, you can follow along on the screen. Verse 7, nevertheless, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. So it's to your advantage that I am crucified, buried, resurrected, and ascend to the Father. But if I do not go away, the helper, who's the helper? The Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they don't believe in me, 
concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, verse 12, this is so good. I still have so many things to say to you, but you just can't bear them right now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare to you, all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, that's why I say, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit convicts of sin and works-based righteousness, and he shows us our need for true righteousness in Jesus. The main role of the Holy Spirit is to relentlessly point to Jesus. He's a pointer. That's what he does. He points. Look at Jesus. I mean, the Spirit within you, the Holy Spirit, is constantly calling out to you, have you seen Jesus? Look at Jesus. Behold Jesus. How amazing is Jesus? How beautiful is the grace and glory of Jesus? Jesus is better. He's all-surpassing. He's worth it. Submit to Jesus. Behold Jesus. Follow Jesus. Obey Jesus. Jesus is better. He just is. He's so much better than these sinful desires which bring momentary but destructive pleasures. Jesus is better. And so when our heart's affections veer from Jesus, when our direction is skewed, he convicts and he reminds us of God's truth to recalibrate our hearts Christward again. He reminds us of the holiness of God and he takes, he shines that holy light upon the dark, shadowy recesses of our soul, upon that sin the areas of darkness that need to be exposed, and he drags them into the light of Christ, and he crucifies them. By the power of the Spirit, we kill sin with extreme prejudice. Look at verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its desires and passions. If you are in Christ, but living in sin, so you are living, you're giving in to the desires of the flesh, you are living out of a false identity. You are pretending to be a dead person. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Weekend at Bernie's. Yeah, don't. It's terrible. They even made a sequel. Why? And Anyway, I don't know. Here's the premise. You have two young college guys, and one of them has an uncle whose name is Bernie, and they go to his house for the weekend, and he has this huge mansion on the beach, he parties it up every weekend, and they're like, this is great. Well, that weekend, Bernie dies. And rather than reporting it to the police, like, you know, a law-abiding citizen, they try to conceal it. No one else knows he's dead. They try to hide it. They're like, oh, we can have his mansion. We can have all his stuff, his resources. We can act like he's still alive and live it up. And so they put makeup on him. They put sunglasses on him. Like, yeah, that'll fool people. And they parade this corpse around, you know, moving his arm like, hey, neighbor, oh, hey, Bernie, and everyone buys it. Who's buying this? For one, the stench of death, the, the decaying smell would be a dead giveaway. Okay, pun kind of intended. <laughs> dead people are dead and they stay dead. Christian, you are alive in Christ. Stop trying to bring back the old, dead you. Crucify the flesh. People didn't get crucified on a cross and come down and live. They didn't walk away from it. There was one way they came down from that cross, and that was by means of 
death. Roman crucifixion was really good, quite effective at killing people. I mean, do you think Paul uses this word haphazardly, crucify, knowing that's how our Savior died, that's how he was killed? To crucify the flesh means to be constantly killing it. The Spirit exposes the cancerous sin in our lives, and then we repent, meaning we submit it to the Lord so he can deal with it and change our pattern of thinking and living from that sin to delighting in Jesus and desiring more of Jesus in our lives. Sin is cancer. Don't play around with it. Kill it. And we see this in 2 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what earnestness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Paul, who is writing this, also says there's worldly grief and godly grief. Worldly grief is concerned with the consequences of sin, but not really with the sin itself. This is called attrition. Attrition is not broken over sin. Attrition is regret for sin prompted by fear of oneself. So like if you sin and you feel like a failure because you've sinned, that's worldly grief. That's worldly sorrow. Or if you just don't want to get caught, you don't like the repercussions, that's worldly grief. Parents, you know, we did parent-child dedication up here. Parents, you know this well because your kid will do something, they get in trouble, and they're like, I'm sorry. And then five seconds later, they do it again. Now, are they genuinely repentant? Yes or no? No. That's I'm sorry I got caught. That's worldly grief, worldly sorrow. Now, godly grief or contrition observes how sin hinders our relationship with God, and it's not okay with that. Godly grief is broken over sin, hates sin. It produces within us this earnest zeal for rightness, an eagerness for cleansing, a longing for restoration with God. Repentance must be rooted in a high value of God, not on oneself. See, the heinousness of sin is not so much in the sin that you commit, but in the greatness of the perfect Holy One you sin against. So could it be that brokenness over sin is actually a great means of grace given to us by the Holy Spirit? Yes. When we repent, we trust in his persistent pardon of our sins. And here's the last point and probably the best point. God is always quick to forgive. He forgives. So receive it. Receive his forgiveness. Sometimes our girls like to go in the backyard and play, and they get dirty, you know, and as kids do. And so let's say we go to a friend's house, and our friend lives on some land on a ranch, and they have a horse barn, and our kids go with their kids, and they go into the horse barn to play, and they're rolling around in the dirt and the mud and the other stuff that inhabits horse stalls. And they come back to me, and they're like, Daddy! I'm like, hey! And they run up to me, and they're like, hug, hug, Daddy! And I'm like, oh, no! No, thank you. Now, I love my girls. I love them dearly. I'm not going to disown them like, whose girls are these? I love them, and I want to hug them. But until they acknowledge their stinkiness, until they acknowledge their dirtiness, until they acknowledge the fact they need to be cleansed with a bath, they're just harder to be around. (laughs) Plus, when one is dirty, when one's covered in mud, your vision is skewed, and you don't walk rightly. Confession is acknowledgement of our stinkiness, our dirtiness, and repentance is getting into that bath and letting the Holy Spirit do his work 
through the cleansing blood of Jesus. Which, by the way, 1 John 1, 9, if anyone confesses his sins, God is faithful and just to forgive his sins and cleanse us from how much unrighteousness? Some? Little? Most? All our sins. All unrighteousness. God's uh, a cleansing plan is the blood of Jesus Christ applied to us by faith so that our close, intimate walk with the Lord is restored. Church, we have to be a safe people where others can lay bare their struggles, their brokenness, and say, I'm messed up, I'm broken, you're messed up, you're broken, I'm seeking help, I'm seeking truth and grace and encouragement. We need to repent and we need to encourage, even challenge others who are living in sin to repent, but do it with a spirit of love, truth, grace, gentleness, because we delight in his holiness.